0: Well, Father, we do thank you together as a congregation this morning for your goodness to us. Thank you for watching over the Honduras team as they traveled just a few weeks ago down and back. Thank you, Father, for the flags on the walls this morning where monthly our resources are being sent to those on the ground there to carry forth the gospel to needy people. But, Father, this morning as we take our Bibles, we need to be prompted and reminded of the urgency of the hour. Father, of of the demands that you have put forth as a just and a holy God. And yet your great love for lost sinners. So Father, stir our hearts this morning. Mobilize us. Give us a courage and a tenacity to be the light and the salt in this world that you've called us to be. Recognizing Jesus Christ alone is the way, the truth, and the life. what What a message, and what a needy world. And so, Father, as we wrap up our thinking here from the last week or so of trying to focus on missions, would you please accomplish your work in us? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now it came to pass that a group existed who called themselves fishermen, and there were many fish in the waters all around. In fact, the whole area was surrounded by streams and lakes filled with fish, and the fish were hungry. Week after week, month after month, and year after year, those who called themselves fishermen met in meetings and talked about their call to fish. They talked about the abundance of fish and how they might go about fishing. Year after year, they carefully defined what fishing means. They defended fishing as an occupation, and they declared that fishing is always to be a primary task of fishermen. These fishermen built large, beautiful buildings for local fishing headquarters. The plea was that everyone should be a fisherman, and every fisherman should fish. One thing they didn't do, however, they didn't fish. In addition to meeting regularly, they organized out fishermen to other places where there were many fish. The board was formed by those who had the great vision and courage to speak about fishing, to define fishing, to promote the idea of fishing in faraway streams and lakes where many other fish of different colors lived. Also, the board hired staffs and appointed committees and held many meetings to define fishing, to defend fishing, to decide what new streams should be thought about. But the staff and the committee members did not fish. Large, elaborate expensive training centers were built whose original and primary purpose was to teach fishermen how to fish. Over the years, courses were offered on the needs of fish, the nature of fish, how to define fish, the psychological reactions of fish, and how to approach and feed fish. Those who taught had doctorates in fishology, but the teachers did not fish. They only taught fishing. Further, the fishermen built large printing houses to publish fishing guides. Presses were kept busy day and night to produce materials solely devoted to fishing methods, equipment, and programs to arrange and encourage meetings to talk about fishing. A speakers bureau was also provided to schedule special speakers on the subject of fishing. After one stirring meeting on quote, the necessity of fishing, close quote, one young fellow left the meeting and went fishing. The next day he reported that he had caught two outstanding fish. He was honored for his excellent catch and scheduled to visit all the big meetings possible to tell how he did it, so he quit his fishing in order to have time to tell about the experience to the other fishermen. He was also placed on the fisherman's general board as a person having considerable experience at fishing. Now it's true that many of the fishermen sacrificed and put up with all kinds of difficulties. Some lived near the water and bore the smell of dead fish. They received the ridicule of some who made fun of their fishermen's clubs and the fact that they claimed to be fishermen yet never fished. They wondered about those who felt it was of little use to attend and talk about fishing. After all, were they not following the master who said follow me and i will make you fishers of men imagine how hurt some were when one day a person suggested that those who didn't fish were not really fishermen no matter how much they claimed to be is a person is a person a fisherman if year after year he never catches a fish is one following if he isn't fishing That's a parable that I have heard read since I was a little boy. It's kind of so old it's new. Interesting question, isn't it? Are we fishermen if we don't really fish? Well, as we detour from the book of Genesis where we have been for some time, I wanted to take the second Sunday of our two-week window dedicated to thinking about missions to challenge us as a ministry to go fishing. I'm going to do this in a little bit of a different way. I don't mean to imply that you don't fish. The Lord is at work in people's lives at Fellowship Bible Church. I hear testimony and see the results of a number of different things that are happening on different occasions where you are sharing the gospel with your friends, where you are broken over your burden to reach out to the lost. But would you agree with me that even here at Fellowship Bible Church, the parable of the fishermen is more true than we would like it to be? And so this morning, as we turn in our Bibles to that little Old Testament book of Jonah, I want to ask you to have an open heart and an open mind to what the Lord would do in your life today as we challenge ourselves once again in this important area I know that I don't have to convince you that we live in a needy world. Most of the people here, I don't have to convince you that we have the message that the world needs. The gospel of Jesus Christ. But isn't it remarkable how we do love to gather and it is commanded that we gather. And it is important that we gather. But one of our responsibilities is to go out and to fish and to be fishers of men. In fact, our Lord Jesus in Matthew's Gospel in chapter 28, we know it as one of His his last command. Someone phrased it this way, Christ's last command is our first concern. And He said clearly, to go and to teach all nations of Jesus, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them all things that He had given them. And so we have a clear-cut, easily understandable mandate to reach out with the gospel. You might think it's strange that we're turning to the Old Testament, but if ever there is a story that is compelling about God's clear call and our great ability to run from that call, it is the story of the book of Jonah. Can I say as we begin to read in just a minute that you need to know in your thinking that the story of the book of Jonah, this Old Testament minor prophet, Jonah, and it's called he's a minor prophet not because of what he did or didn't do. He's a minor prophet simply because it's a short book. It's only a page and a half or so. The major prophets are the long books. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. And so as we look at Jonah's testimony and what happens in this story, I want you to see yourself in Jonah because there are some important lessons to be learned here. You couldn't have a more clear call and you couldn't have a more rebellious servant. But I want to ask you a question. Whether we rebel intentionally or whether we disobey passively, are the results any different? The end result is the job doesn't get done. I want us to read the entire story. We're not going to be able to bog down. But I want you to know that uh, this is not just a children's story. In fact, it is a dramatic, serious, in-your-face story. It is also a story that has been belittled and shot at by skeptics and liberal theologians as not being true, that it is a fable, it is something that um, is an allegory of some kind. Perhaps Jonah represents Israel, and I think that he does in some ways, and that they were called to be a light to the Gentile nations, and that they had not fulfilled their calling you need to know that if you would take the time and study Matthew chapter 12 and don't turn there right now, but Matthew chapter 12 and verses 38 through 41, Jesus is confronting the Pharisees and it is clear that Jesus believes 100% that this was a true story, that Jonah was a real prophet and that this really happened and that Jonah spent three literal days and nights in the belly of a great fish. He also used it as somewhat of a picture for the fact that He, the Son of Man, would be three days and three nights in the grave. But when you study that passage and you read that passage, it doesn't take an in-depth study to realize that Jesus is referencing Jonah, the prophet, and Jonah's story in running from Nineveh to Tarshish, ending up in the belly of a fish, as real history that really happened. He also points to the conversion and the repentance of the Ninevites as a true revival, a true repentance that really happened. And so I hope that you don't take this story this morning and say, oh man, we're just doing a kid's Sunday school story. Not at all. This is a a dramatic story. And secondly, I hope that you're not skeptical enough to say that How could all that happen? See, you have to understand that this really... The key player in the story isn't Jonah. The key player in the story is God. A God who is merciful and a God who pursues sinners. And a God who can do whatever He wants. And a God who speaks the worlds into existence can easily create a fish on the spot or use a fish that's already existent to swallow a man. God can keep a man alive for three days in the fish. Some people think that Jonah died in the belly of the fish and that he he resurrected that God raised him from the dead, that that makes it the complete literal picture of the the death and burial and resurrection of Christ. I personally believe he did not die. I believe he came within a, a breath of dying. It's not hard for God to grow a gourd or a plant overnight, as you're going to see in a minute, that this plant would grow overnight and create shade. People look at that and they say, how can that happen? And you know what they do? They study all kinds of botanical books and books on biology to try to figure out what kind of plant could grow overnight. That doesn't matter. God can make a red oak grow overnight if he wants. What kind of God do you have? So let's read our story, and I'm going to break it down, and we're going to have to move. I will comment some, but I want you to notice, particularly in the first part of chapter 1 here in verse 1, that Jonah receives, number 1, a clear call. A clear call. Notice, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. A clear call. It couldn't be any clearer. But, verse 3, Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. Don't worry about Nineveh and Tarshish other than think on a map that over on the east side is Nineveh where he's supposed to go. You can literally get on a ship and slip through the Mediterranean, go underneath the, the toe of Italy and come over to Tarshish. And it's plus or minus if Bible students have identified the correct cities, plus or minus 2,500 miles opposite each other, apart. He's supposed to go east, he goes west. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. We see demonstrated, number two, a hard heart. Notice as I read the rest of the chapter that he would rather die than go. He would rather die than obey the word of the Lord. It seems incomprehensible. I think many of us can relate to this. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Proverbs 15.3 says, The eyes of the Lord are everywhere, keeping watch on the evil and the good. It's one reason why you have to have your theology straight so that you don't do stupid things like this. You need to be so overwhelmed with the truth and overwhelmed with the reality of who God is that you spare yourself these kinds of detours. I'm going to run from the Lord, right? Run fast, run far. Because everywhere you are, there he is. But isn't sin always illogical? Can't we come up with the most harebrained ideas when we're hard of heart? And so we have a hard-hearted man here. First of all, a clear call, an undeniably clear call. Secondly, a hard heart. Thirdly, this leads into a dark time. Let's get to it. The Lord sends a great wind, verse 4, on the sea. And such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid and each cried out to his own God, little G, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. Clearly, a a laden ship is deeper in the water and more difficult to buoy up than a light ship, and they're throwing valuable goods over. It occurred to me as I was studying this passage this week and meditating on it, that sin, our personal sin, always has negative residual effect people around us who have nothing to do with us you ever notice that all kinds of people end up getting involved in things that they never would have gotten involved in in a negative way because of our sin sin is insidious isn't it that's the way sin is you can't contain it you can't box it up oh i didn't mean for that to happen and Jonah's disobedience is costing some businessman literally probably thousands and tens of thousands of dollars in goods as they chuck him over the side. As God has miraculously intervened with a storm. Go ahead, Jonah. See if you can ride this one out. And they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone down below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. Sleep is the Christian's drug, isn't it? I don't want to deal with this. I don't want to face it. I don't want to process this. I'm going to sleep. That is an incredible picture, isn't it? In light of the fact that God has a call, and there are needy people, and God's servant is asleep. The captain went to him. Get this. A pagan captain, more concerned about what's going on in the mind of God than the prophet of God. The captain went down to him and said, How can you sleep? What is wrong with you? Get up, call on your God, little G. Maybe he will take notice of us, and we will not perish. Listen, these guys worship gods of the sky, gods of the sea, gods of the land, gods, any god they could think of. They thought they were very superstitious and mythological. It's how they thought, it's the way they grew up in fear then the sailors said to each other come let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity they cast lots and the lot fell on jonah this is a very interesting story how this unfolds i mean they just happened to think of this somebody on this ship in their superstition And in their imagination, they figured that this storm was so unusual and so bad that their boat was going to come apart. They were all going to die, and surely the gods of the sea and the gods of the thunderclouds were getting vengeance on somebody wicked on this ship. People think like that, don't they? It's like, I've done something really bad, so lots of bad, you know, it's bad karma. The servant of God knows exactly what's going on. He tries to be quiet about it for a while. The sailors say to each other, let's do this. Who's responsible for this calamity? So they asked him, tell us who is responsible for making all the trouble for us. When he drew the lot, when he drew the short straw, it was like, ooh, it's him. I mean, they're spooked. They're going to die. They're superstitious. They're pagans. They don't know the living God. They don't understand. And isn't it interesting that Jonah can process all of this? Jonah can process in his heart and in his conscience and in his intellect everything that's going on here. And he can still keep running. Do you know that our disobedience is almost never an issue of knowledge? Do you know that people's sin and disobedience almost never has to do with education? Say, that guy's sinning. He needs to know. Now, almost always, especially those who know God and know the Word and walk with Christ... When we turn away from obedience, it's almost never a matter of a lack of information. It is almost always purely a matter of hardness of heart. Self-will. He answered, I'm a Hebrew. I worship the Lord, verse 9. The God of heaven who made the sea and the land. I know who did all this. I know who's in control. This terrified them and they asked, Well, what have you done? And they knew... They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them. (laughs) You know, they're sitting in the galley eating breakfast or something. And they say, hey guys, I need you guys to know something. I'm not supposed to be on this ship. You guys need to know something. The Lord, I'm a prophet of God, and the Lord called me to go to Nineveh. Ooh, they all said, ooh, Nineveh, Nineveh. Because as we'll learn in a minute, that's incredibly wicked. It's like, ooh, They'll cut your throat. But he says, I'm not going. I'm going to Tarshish. They already knew. The whole ship knew. There's a man of God. He's supposed to go to Nineveh. He's going to Tarshish. He's running from the Lord. He told them. This thing, it's mind boggling. It's mind boggling. This terrified them and they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher. So they asked him, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down? This is absolutely mind boggling. Listen to what he says. I know you know the story. Can you imagine this stuff? You can't make this up. Pick me up and throw me into the sea. And it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. You know what the men say? No, no, we can't do that. We can't do that. So instead, verse 13, the men did their best to row back to land. But they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. And then they cried out to the Lord. These guys are getting saved on the deck of this ship. We now have Yahweh and Elohim being cried out to here. Lord, capital L-O-R-D. O Lord, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, O Lord, have done as you pleased. And these pagans have some of their theology pretty straight, don't they? And then they took Jonah and they threw him overboard. And the raging sea grew calm. That is just remarkable, isn't it? And can you imagine how they... Imagine the emotion. No! Okay, we don't know what else to do. And you said it. You said throw you in and it would calm down. Maybe we'll throw him in and maybe if it calms down right away, we can get him back out. They think they're murdering the guy. They throw him in the raging sea and then... Whoa. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to Him. You talk about a foxhole conversion. It's happening. But the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah and Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. This is the part where, like on the plant that's coming up, the little tree and the worm, everybody starts doing their research on their marine biology. Now what kind of fish could swallow a man? You know, there's several. But I'll tell you something, who cares? This is not a problem. You have major, you have major theological issues if you read this and you say, God can't do that. This can't be true. You're approaching your Bible from the totally wrong angle. God provided a fish. We know exactly how it happened. God provided it. Bingo. Was it there instantly? I don't know. Ask him when you get to heaven. It's one of the questions you can ask him. That there fish in the Mediterranean, was it swimming along and did it just like so happen to be there? Was it, you know, snapping at salmon and it got Jonah? No, it says God provided and Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. Notice this dark time in chapter 2 continues. All of chapter 2 I've entitled, A Dark Time. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord God, his God, and he said, In my distress I called to the Lord and he answered me. From the depths of the grave I called for help. And you listened to my cry. Bump up to verse 8. Basically, his life is ebbing away, verse 7. God gets a hold of him. Do you know that God has to hit us upside the head with a 2 by 4 once in a while? Do you know that um, people who can read their Bibles and understand the language have a great ability to just ignore it? And God sometimes has to kind of snap his fingers and get our attention. Basically, that's what's happening here. Jonah has a change of heart, at least to the degree that he's willing to go. Verse 8 those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. But I, with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good. Salvation comes to the Lord. Hallelujah. Amen. Get me out of this fish. I'll do whatever you want. And God has worked the change in his life and his heart, right? And the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah unto dry land. That is the one thing in this story I'd like to have seen more than any other part. Because I think it's interesting that it says it vomited him onto dry land. I'm picturing him getting burped up out in about waist-deep water. And we can't get bogged down in this because it doesn't really matter, but I'm picturing if if he'd vomited him out onto dry land, it's a little bit like up onto the sand. (laughs) Bam. It says in the Psalms, as well as it implies here, that he had seaweed wrapped around his head. I imagine his skin was bleached out from stomach juice. This guy's a mess. God got a hold of his heart enough to give him a spirit of boldness and obedience, so that in chapter three, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, and he gets number four, verses one through three in chapter three, a new start. And when the word of the Lord, when the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Jonah gets a new start as do the people in Nineveh. In number five, it causes a great fast. Notice that Jonah obeyed. Nineveh was a very important city. It required three days. A visit required three days, so the city itself was not that big. We won't get into the details. Somewhere around uh, two miles in diameter, eight miles in circumference, with an outer wall and an inner wall. Archaeologists tell us that the inner wall was a massive wall itself. Some 50 feet wide and 100 feet tall, they speculate. That's a huge wall. So the core of the city was protected by the inner wall, two miles in diameter, about eight miles around. And so evidently with the suburbs of the area, this was a great city. It took about three days. They give a guy 20 miles a day. It took 60 miles to walk around this city. It doesn't have to be quite that big because if Joan has taken the time to stop and to preach and to warn and to exhort, the city doesn't have to be quite that big. But it's a area both inside and outside the walls on the first day jonah started into the city he proclaimed 40 more days and nineveh will be overturned the ninevites believed god they declared a fast and this begins a great fast continued by the king in a minute and all of them from the greatest to the least put on sackcloth when the news reached the king of nineveh he rose from his throne took off his royal robes covered him with sackcloth covered himself with sackcloth sat down in the dust and then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh. Listen to this proclamation. By decree decree of the king and his nobles, do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Here's the great fast. Do not let them eat or drink, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone urgently call on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn with his fierce anger so that we will not perish And when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, look what it says. He had compassion. Number six, we have a kind God, a kind God. He had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. Chapter four, Jonah returns with a proud heart, but Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. So he and God had had a conversation before he ever got on the boat. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. That's interesting in light of the news this week, isn't it? God is not sitting up in heaven sending tsunamis just to bust people's chops. But even like the tower in Siloam that they asked Jesus about, were those people more guilty than anybody else when the tower fell and people died? And Jesus said, he didn't really give an answer. Basically, he just said, no, but when you see something like that, know that a coming judgment is there and you don't want to be caught by the wrath of a holy God. It's a warning. And it says God doesn't like to do that. It's not, God's not out there just messing with people. God is a kind and compassionate and loving God. It says, abounding in love. A God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for it is better better for me to die than to live. We have a kind God. Number seven, we have a proud, cold heart. A cold heart. We then, number eight, have a mad man. He gets really angry the rest of the story. And then the sad truth comes out. Let's look at it quickly. Jonah went out, sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very, very happy about the vine. This is what I was talking about before. It grew up overnight and gave him shade in the hot winds that were coming off the Arabian desert. Don't choke on that any more than swallowed by a fish in the storm caused by God's hand. It's nothing. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the vine so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die again and he said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you have a right to be angry about the vine? I do, he said, I'm angry enough to die. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it, and you did not make it grow. It sprang up overnight, and it died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left hand. That means they're probably under four years of age. And many cattle as well. I think that's an interesting statement. Don't you, Henry? God cares about the cattle in Nineveh. Should I not be concerned about that great city? And the book just ends. You know what the sad truth is? Jonah just didn't flat care about these people. You know why Jonah didn't care about these people? Because, number one, he was hatefully prejudiced. He was so prejudiced that he'd just soon see these people die and go to hell. We don't have time to get into it now, but these people were known for their ferocity. They were known for their horrible antics. They had sharp knives and they cut people's throats. Sound like anybody you've heard of lately? They piled up heads like Civil War cannonball piles just for fun. They filleted their enemies and stretched their hides out on their city wall just for their trophies, just to intimidate. They were wicked, evil people. And you know they probably had a little different shaped eye, different shaped nose, different shaped lips, and different colored skin than Jonah had. And he pretty much just didn't care if they died and went to hell. Prejudice. Number one. Number two, he was selfishly arrogant, wasn't he? My personal comfort matters more than the eternal destiny of these people's souls. I am just not willing to upset my air-conditioned world and you took away my shade and I'm so mad about it, I could spit, in fact, I could die. This guy's got some heart issues, don't you think? Thirdly, not only was he hatefully prejudiced, selfishly arrogant, but he was callously indifferent, wasn't he? When you can look at God and you can say 120,000 children that don't know their left hand from their right hand can just burn and go to hell. I don't care. Can I ask you what I asked you before? if we disobey God's clear command through overt rebellion, are the results any different if we disobey God's clear command through passive indifference? John Piper says, in regards to the Great Commission, that is, you see, it's almost exactly the same word. The word of the Lord, verse 1, chapter 1, came to the, Jonah, son of Anna, Go! Go is the first word. The Great Commission says, go into all the world and preach the gospel. John Piper says there are only three possible responses to the Great Commission. You can go, or you can send, or you can be disobedient. Ignoring the cause is not an option. Because of time, we have to stop right there. But let me ask you a question. Who is it that's on your heart today to share the gospel with? Why is it that you're not sharing the gospel? What is it about us that we can be so complacent? Listen, our obedience is very personal. Nobody else can obey for you. Would you let God renew your passion for the reality of the gospel? We have to either go or we have to be senders or we're disobedient. I have to tell you we're doing a little bit of sending but we're pretty we're pretty passive senders even aren't we? We've hardly gone it's hugely duplicitous. I'm becoming convinced of my own self that I would stand and preach about people in the far reaches of the world when I don't walk 250 feet behind my back where I'm preaching to the front door and kitchen table of our nearest neighbor and share Christ with them. You talk about duplicitous hypocrisy. Come on, everybody, let's go fishing. Nah, let's just look at our tackle and grease our reels. Let's pray. And so, Father, do your work in us. I'm not sure how you want to use this message, Lord, and I do want to thank you for the great testimony of Jonah. What a story, and yet what a disgrace. Yet, Father, we can easily be embarrassed about our own obedience. Thank you for your great love and kindness which compelled you to send Jesus Christ to be our substitute so that we as sinners can look to the cross and be saved. Father, it is so politically incorrect, You you know as well as we do, that they hate the message of the cross because it's an exclusive message and there is only one way, but would you help us never to be ashamed of your gospel? Lord, give us the courage that we need now to put legs to the truth here to share our stories and to share your gospel with the lost people around us and in our neighborhoods. Father, would you begin to stir our hearts here at Fellowship that we would be sending, supporting, going people like never before. In Jesus' name I pray.